Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. April 7th is International Beaver Day. So let's talk a few minutes about these very interesting animals. Now, you probably know that beavers are semi-aquatic mammals that live throughout most of North America. Beavers are most noted for their exceptionally long teeth and their flattened paddle-like tails. The beaver is mainly a nocturnal animal. Peter, have you ever seen a beaver? No, I don't think I've ever seen a live beaver. Now, there are two species of beaver, the European beaver and the North American beaver. What do you call a baby beaver? You want multiple choice? Yes, for sure. Okay. A cub? No. Kitten? Mm. Joey? A kitten. Yes. Wow, I never heard that before. (laughs) Baby beavers are called kittens or kits for short. Mm -hmm. What baby animals are called cubs? There's bear cubs. Bears. probably a lot. Right. um, Wolves, big cats. What baby animals called a joey? That's kangaroo. Very good. True or false? Beavers are the largest rodent in the world. I'm going to say false. False. Have you heard of a capybara? Capybara, like an animal? Yeah. No, no. Capybara is a South American mammal that resembles a giant long-legged guinea pig, and it is the largest living rodent. So beavers are the second largest living rodent in the world after the capybara. Mm. Adult beavers are around three feet long and have been known to weigh over 25 kilograms or 55 pounds, Mm. and females can be even larger. So that's... Like a medium-sized dog, right? Wow. What do you think the lifespan of a beaver is? Oh, I'm going to say nine years. In the wild, beavers can live up to 24 years. The beaver is the national animal of what country? (laughs) Okay, Okay. you said, okay. Multiple choice? Mm, Okay, go. Okay. Greece, Canada, Turkey. (laughs) Turkey. Canada and features on the five-cent piece. So Turkey... The gray wolf is the national animal. And you know what the national animal of Greece is? I would guess a bird. Dolphins. Dolphin. Yeah. Ah. Beavers like to keep themselves busy. They are prolific builders during the night. Hence the saying. Busy as a beaver. Exactly. What do beavers build? They build dams. That's right. Beavers come together into a colony and build dams to create a pond-like environment where they can live safe from predators. Since short legs and wide body make the rodents vulnerable on land, beavers, which are excellent swimmers, use their large flat tails and webbed hind feet to their advantage by nesting in the water. If a predator approaches, beavers slap their tails on the water's surface or the ground to produce an alarm-like sound. After doing this, the beavers dive underwater to enter their homes called lodges. By making the lodge entrance underwater, beavers receive even more protection from predators. A beaver can stay underwater for up to 15 minutes. And their dams, Peter, can be enormous. The world's largest beaver dam stretches 850 meters deep in the thick wilderness of northern Alberta. It was discovered after being spotted on a satellite image in 2007, but scientists believe multiple generations of beavers have been working on the dam since the 1970s. Wow, fascinating. Beavers derive their food from trees, so they're herbivores. They not only eat bark, they also eat a substance called cambium. Have you heard of that? You mean part of the tree? Yeah, it's a layer of rapidly dividing cells that is located immediately under the outer bark of the trees. Mm -hmm. The large front teeth of the beavers never stop growing. The beaver's constant gnawing on wood helps to keep their teeth from growing too long. 
there were once more than 60 million North American beavers. But due to hunting, of course, for, their, for the beaver's fur, its glands for medicine, and because the beaver's tree felling and dams affect other land uses, the population has declined to around 12 million. Another interesting bit of information here, Peter, in 1948, new human inhabitants of western Idaho began to clash with the local beaver population. The Idaho Department of Fish and Game wanted to put these threatened beavers in a nearby protected area, but they didn't know how to get them there. Elmo Heder of Idaho Fish and Game devised a solution. By using surplus parachutes from World War II, the department could drop boxes of beavers down from planes. Oh, my goodness. After some careful calibration, 76 beavers made the skydive into the basin, and all but one survived the fall. There's got to be a movie about that. Yeah, I know, really. (laughs) And finally, Peter, who is the beaver? Oh, from the TV show, The Beave? Yes, leave it to Beaver. I don't know who played him. Jerry Mathers played mm-hmm. Theodore Beaver, nicknamed Beaver. He's still alive, by the way. He's 68 years old. Ah. This this uh, television series ended in 1963. Did you watch it? Only reruns. Okay. What do you have there? Well, Lori, I have a survey from the researchers at National Today. They have reminded us that just the other day, March 28th, was, believe it or not, Respect Your Cat Day, which I find very amusing because I don't think my cats respect me. They just want food and limited contact. But there is a day called Respect Your Cat Day, and a survey was done to commemorate this day. And a 1,000 Americans were surveyed, and here are some of the highlights. 37% of Americans said that their cats, quote, get them, meaning they understand them better than most of their human friends. So their cats understand them. And about 80% of cat owners can understand what their cats are trying to communicate based upon their meows alone. Hmm. What does a cat want? Feed me, <laughs> go away, or pet me? I mean, it's not that... No, I don't know. there's more to it than there's that. More to it. Okay, well... of Americans prefer their cats over their friends. They say they'd rather spend time at home with their cat than go out with their friends. And one in five Americans have even taken it further. They've used their cats as an excuse to get out of activities that they don't want to do. Interesting. What did they say? My cat is sick. I have to take care of my cat. Yeah. Mm. Then in the survey, respondents were asked to show how they give their cats respect, the top ways they give their cats respect. Number one is I pet my cat, 81%. I verbally praise my cat. I give my cat a treat. I pick up my cat and hold him or her, or I give my cat gifts. Those are the ways people show respect to their cat. I'm still not really getting it. How about you? How do you respect our cats? Well, like I said, the whole notion is a little weird because I don't think it's really reciprocal, but I do, uh, you know, I give them what they need to be a cat. We food, organic catnip. Oh, and oh, and yeah, I did just walk around the house and counted all of the cat trees and scratching posts we have around the house. How many do you think we have? Not including cardboard scratchers. Okay. Not including. Str- yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, okay. Seven. 13. 13? 13 in our house, oh. independent cat trees or post 
cat scratchers. So wow. in, pretty much in every room, there's a, a lot of cat respect being demonstrated. Wow, that's okay? more than an average of three per cat. So how are the respondents going to celebrate or how did they celebrate this special day with their cats? Respect your cat day. Well, number one, take naps. That I can relate to. Okay. I love napping with my cat. Okay. Number two, spend quality time with human family members. That is logical. Okay. And just talk about how much you respect your cat. And number three, watch movies or TV does not indicate whether that's with or without cat. But that's how people spend the day. Lori, how many cats do you think are owned in the United States? I'll tell you. 85.8 million cats are owned in the U.S. estimated. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's more than the 78 million dogs that are in households. About 44% of households in the U.S. have a dog and 35% have a cat or more. Now, where do families get their cats? They come mainly from animal shelter or humane society, about a third, uh, from friends or relatives, thanks a lot, uh, for, or they're acquired by strays. Those are the main ways uh, families get their cats. Less common, breeder, 3%, or other private parties. Well, talking about cats, a new study published in the journal Behavioral Processes showed that contrary to common belief, including yours, Peter, mm. cats actually prefer hanging out with you and like you better than food. So any cat owner will probably tell you that their cat or cats like food a lot. Peter, we know that. We have cats and had cats who will meow in your ear or headbutt your face in order to wake you up early in the morning to get some fresh food. But the study found that when a mixed group of 50 shelter and house cats were deprived of human social interaction, food, toys, and scents for a few hours, quote, social interaction with humans was what they wanted most. For the study, researchers from Oregon State University set out to determine what motivates domestic cats given the common belief that cats are not especially sociable or trainable. The cats were deprived for a few hours, then reintroduced to the above factors. While the study revealed that there was clearly individual variability in cat preference, Newsweek reports that human interaction was preferred by 50% of the cats tested, while only 37% chose food as their favorite stimuli. The study found the preference was true both for pet cats and shelter cats. So what can we learn from the study that Cat owners need to spend more time with their cats and shelter cats would love for shelter workers to give them a bit more interaction and attention. Will the study change your behavior if you're a cat owner? Or does this study just make you feel guilty for not spending more time than you do with your cats? And don't go away. More interesting stuff on Animals Today right after the break. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and you're listening to Animals Today. We often say that Animals Today is your home for serious talk about animals, and we certainly cover the most critical and newsworthy topics and issues affecting all animals worldwide. When you join us, you'll hear fascinating interviews with leading animal advocates from all walks of life, from lawyers to whale protectors to authors to tortoise rescuers. Animals Today brings you timely, interesting animal news, and often our guests tell us how we all can take action to help our animal friends. But you know what? 
Just like you, we also love our companion animals, our dogs and cats and rabbits and more. Listen in and you'll get useful advice from expert veterinarians and animal behaviorists, as well as product news and reviews and more fun stuff. So join us on Animals Today and thanks for listening. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. If you're a cat or dog guardian, hopefully your animal has identification tags on their body and is microchipped. Many people think ID tags are enough if your companion animal gets lost or escapes from your home, but it's really not. I mean, what if the collar falls off of him or her, or someone purposely or accidentally removes their collar and tags? Then what? Having both identification tags and microchipping your pet is the best thing you can do to ensure in the unlikely event you are separated from your animal that he or she will be successfully reunited with you and your family. Now, in a minute, I'm going to tell you a little story to emphasize this point that microchipping your animal is needed in addition to identification tags. But first, what is a microchip? Microchips are small. They're about the size of a grain of rice. A hermetically sealed glass capsule keeps moisture out and contains a chip, antenna, and a capacitor. Now, the microchip is inserted into the loose skin of your dog's shoulder with a large needle. Now, this may sound painful. It really isn't. The dogs don't even flinch when it's inserted, so it doesn't even require sedation. A very interesting little fact here. In 1985, Dr. Hannes Stoddard invented the microchip-based pet recovery system and formed American Veterinary Identification Devices, AVID, A-V-I-D. AVID's pioneering work in the field of radio frequency identification has been globally recognized by the award of 37 patents. AVID saves pets' lives every day by reuniting thousands of lost animals with their families. Now, I want to tell you a true story. A few years back in Indio, California, a stray or, or lost dog was picked up and delivered to the Animal Care Center of Indio Animal Shelter. So that's the, the animal shelter in Indio, California. Although the shelter's usual protocol, like most shelters in the country, was to perform a scan for a microchip upon intake to help determine who quote, owns this dog. Their scanning device had been broken for a while and dogs simply were not getting scanned. Now, we learned about this serious and unfortunate breach of standard protocol in a rather roundabout fashion. A few times a year, my friend Catherine would, on her own, arrange for anywhere from five to ten dogs to be transported from this disgraceful shelter in Indio, which had a very high kill rate, to a northern California shelter, which was highly successful at getting their dogs into loving homes. Now, after making all the transfer arrangements, Catherine would pass up her own vehicle and escort the dogs to the safety of the northern shelter. 
Now, the dog in question upon entering the northern shelter was scanned and found to have a microchip, which provided enough information to locate the dog's owner, who proved to be a resident of the town of Indio. Even though the dog had no ID tags, being microchipped made it possible to find the owner. Now, this man truly loved his dog and was terribly upset when he lost him. He immediately jumped into his car, drove 500 miles to reclaim his dog and reunite him with the rest of his family. So except for the unnecessary thousand miles of driving, the the stress the dog experienced and the expense incurred by the owner, this fiasco ended happily. Nevertheless, think how easily it could have been completely avoided if the Indio shelter only had a functioning scanner and used it. This dog was lucky to get out of the Indio shelter and to get scanned, even if 500 miles away. But we'll never really know how many lost and stray dogs picked up by the city of Indio's animal control during the time the shelter was not properly scanning were unnecessarily killed instead of being reunited with their families. So very important, number one, make sure your dog and cat is microchipped. Number two, keep your microchip registry information current. The shelter where you adopted the dog or cat or a veterinarian can assist you in locating the registry for the chip. And number three, don't forget all companion animals should also be wearing current identification tags. And you are listening to Animals Today, your home for series talk about animals. Join us each week for animal news from around the world and visit us at animalstodayradio.com. I want to remind my listeners how important it is to plan for the care of your animals in case you die before them. And I want to tell you a little story related to this. Several years ago, when I was single and living in a condominium in Palm Springs, I had an elderly neighbor who lived across the way who had a dog, Chloe. Chloe was an eight-year-old white terrier mix, and my neighbor just loved this dog. Now, sadly, after an illness, this woman passed away, and she never made arrangements for someone to care for Chloe after she died. Now, her children traveled from the other side of the country to bury their mother, but They had no interest in taking or adopting Chloe, so Chloe ended up in a shelter where, as you know, tragically, many unwanted dogs are euthanized. This was clearly the last thing my neighbor would have wanted to happen to Chloe. Now, fortunately, because of my good working relationship with the shelter personnel, they agreed not to euthanize Chloe and to hold her until I could find a loving forever home. And fortunately, this did happen. Chloe lived out her senior years, not only with a wonderful couple, but with their shepherd mix, who she adored. And you helped place Chloe, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah. And your friend who passed away, she didn't have a will, but also didn't tell her children what she would want to happen to Chloe. So there was really chaos, wasn't there? There was chaos. Okay. So there's the big message. You have to plan, but what really should you do? And you spoke with Francis Carlyle, a legal expert about this uh, a few months ago, didn't you? Yes, Francis is a New York attorney specializing in trust and estate planning. And she shared her experiences with us in the steps all dog guardians should take when preparing their will. And the first is that you need to prepare something and you need to have a lawyer who's experienced in this. She explained that many lawyers, they did not learn this in law school and they're just not up to what they uh, could do or should do. So make sure you uh, speak with someone who's done this before, which is 
not to say that you necessarily need a will if you are going to communicate your wishes to trustworthy friends or family and even get it in, in writing. But just uh, make sure you take some steps so, so people know what you want. But Peter, you need an agreement from your friends or family. A lot of times friends or family don't really want that responsibility after they're gone. So just don't lay it on them. A further step you could take is to create a pet trust, right? Right. So you can't leave property or money directly to your companion animals. They're not allowed to receive that, but you can create a legal structure, a trust uh, that you can fund with money and then designate trustees to care for your animals when you're gone with your specific instructions. And it's important to review your arrangements each year to confirm that the caregivers and trustees you've chosen are still willing and able to fulfill these duties. And we do that yearly with our people too, don't we? Right. Which reminds me of uh, Leona Helmsley. Yes, Leona Helmsley and her dog, Trouble. Trouble. So Trouble was her Maltese dog, and she left $12 million in the trust fund for Trouble. Right, Peter? But later, the judge lowered the inheritance to $2 million. And listen, after receiving numerous death and kidnapping threats, Trouble retired to Florida. And she died at the age of 12 in 2011. But she had full-time security and received round-the-clock, luxurious care from the general manager of the Helmsley Sandcastle Hotel in Sarasota. So that's probably the richest inheritance by any animal. I do believe so. City has a fairly new law which restricts the sale of dogs deemed to be coming from puppy mills, and this was recently challenged, and the challenge failed. So what were the issues, and how did this all go down? With us is legal expert Bob Ferber. Hey, Bob. Hi, Peter. How you doing? I'm just fine, and it, this is good news. Uh, what's the background of this uh, challenge? Well, it's uh, the federal law has basically classifies three different uh, types of breeders for animals. There's A, B, and C. Uh, these are people that will have keep animals, and the Animal Welfare Act, which is a federal law, protects them. Uh, and what happened was Class B licenses are typically, we, they're the ones that provide the puppies to pet stores, and I know most of your listeners are aware of puppy mills, and these are typically under the classification of Class B breeders. New York City decided to uh, ban, uh, as many cities are starting to do, ban the sale of puppies that come from Class B breeders. Many, if not most, Class B breeders are considered uh, running puppy mills or substandard places for raising puppies. New York City passed a law banning the sale of animals from class B dealers, which is, in really plain terms, another city's effort to stop puppies coming from puppy mills. Well, a group of um, organizations, the American Kennel Club, which is the AKC and does the dog shows, and a bunch of breeders and uh, veterinarians, actually, and pet store owners came together and sued the city of New York, saying that New York City could not 
ban animals from Class B dealers because of two things. Number one, the federal government licenses it, and that means that only the federal government can get rid of it. And they also argue that the same rules were not applying equally to other organizations like rescue groups that rescue animals. And we've heard these sort of stories before. Yeah, this has been going on for several years, and it's uh, very much an argument of property rights, people saying that my animal isn't a living creature as much as it's my property, I own it, and I can do what I want with it, and I can sell it, I can breed it, I don't have to spay or neuter it if I don't want to, and fortunately, it seems the trend is changing, and this is very significant in that, in the long term. The the important point here is that the Circuit Court of Appeals looked at this and said, no, the breeders, the veterinarians, and everybody that was opposing this ban, they are wrong. The federal government is not just in charge of it, that we are saying cities around the country, if they want to ban Class B dealers, they can do it. So this case is actually very powerful and important because up until this point, there was a question of, well, if a city tries to do this, what happens if somebody sues and says you can't do it because the federal government licenses Class B dealers? So this opens the door for cities around the country to start passing laws that ban these animals or ban the sale of these animals and will hopefully, you know, contribute to the, the virtual elimination of these horrible puppy mills that we read and see all over the news all the time. So based upon rulings like this, local ordinances and cities would be able to restrict, for instance, the sale of ivory products? Uh, How far are they going to go? We're not certain. They said that this is not interfering with the Animal Welfare Act. Uh, What they said was that it was not preempted. Presumably, This would allow other bans, other local ordinances that also, just because the federal government may license it, they can ban it. So, yes, it has huge consequences. I'm quite sure we're going to see a lot more uh, litigation just because the second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals upheld this ban on puppy mill dogs doesn't mean that the story is over. It's very likely that The New York Pet Welfare Association or another organization is going to fight this and take this up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And with the politics that's going on today, nobody really knows how the U.S. Supreme Court might rule on something like this, but I don't think this is the end of the battle. But it's a very positive step for animal welfare, in my opinion. And Bob, there's another recent story I would like you to comment on. This comes out of Maryland. And evidently, the Good Samaritan law protecting people who want to help animals in urgent situations, including brave firefighters, needs to be updated, doesn't it? Yes. There's kind of a loophole that really wasn't considered by legislators around the country when they passed Good Samaritan laws. A Good Samaritan law, the easiest way to understand it is uh, you or maybe somebody, you see a traffic accident, you stop, you provide some sort of help to this person that's a victim of the traffic accident. And let's say you do something that you drag somebody out of a vehicle and they break their they they injured themselves or they get injured while you're rescuing them and they sue you saying that you you rescued them the wrong way yeah. and it's your fault the good samaritan laws protect 
good Samaritans who are trying to rescue people from being sued. Most states have good Samaritan laws that protect the average citizen or firefighters and police officers when they're trying to help somebody. Otherwise, we could have tragic consequences in a society where everybody is afraid that if I stop and help somebody, I might get sued. The problem is nobody seemed to have contemplated what happens if you're rescuing an animal. You're helping somebody else's animal. You're, um, you're fired. The most common situation or emotional one is firefighters who rescue cats and dogs and give them emergency treatment. Well, are they protected? Well, 22 states have laws that do say that if a firefighter or police officer renders aid to an animal, that they are protected, and that even if something goes wrong, they still can render the aid. In this country, virtually every state has good Samaritan laws that protect people who are trying to help somebody else. Typical situation is somebody sees a traffic accident and they try to rescue a person from the burning vehicle, let's say. Uh, they are, if something goes wrong, the person who they are rescuing can't sue them because there's a, they were a good Samaritan. So good Samaritans are, can be an average citizen um, or firefighter or some sort of emergency personnel. The problem is that what happens if an emergency personnel tries to rescue or give medication or medical aid to somebody's animal? And we've all seen many, many emotional stories of firefighters that have rescued of people's pets and cats and dogs and horses and, and, and given them aid, oxygen masks and everything. And many fire departments are even trained in this. The problem is that the, state, the laws typically did not protect them if they did if something went wrong. If emergency personnel helps a human, they're protected if something goes wrong and they can't be sued. But if they're protecting somebody's animal, if they're trying to save somebody's animal and are rendering any kind of aid, they can get in trouble in two ways. First of all, they can be sued because they're not considered under the Good Samaritan laws. And secondly, in most states, it's a crime to practice veterinary medicine, which means rendering medical aid, unless you have a medical license or a veterinary license. So emergency personnel were subject to being sued for helping animals, and even worse, they could be criminally prosecuted for practicing medicine without a license. So the good news is Maryland is proposing a law that would close this big loophole and finally protect first responders, that's emergency personnel, that go out of their way to help a dog or cat or somebody's family pet uh, during an emergency so that if something goes wrong, they won't be sued. It also, as I understand it, will go one step further and will remove the other loophole saying that if a firefighter is administering medical aid, they're technically practicing veterinary medicine without a license. The Maryland law that they're proposing would also make it clear that that's not a crime if you're doing it under these circumstances. And Bob, what's the situation in California? You know, we're based here and California's a leader in these sorts of things. What's going on here? Well, California just recently passed a limited Good Samaritan law. Uh, regarding animals. Uh, it's now uh, law that in California that if you somebody sees a dog in a hot car and they want to rescue the animal without having to wait too long for emergency personnel, they can break into the vehicle and under certain circumstances they can do it. 
and it's legal, and the owner of the dog cannot sue them for either damage to the car or something that goes wrong with the animal. But, but unfortunately, California doesn't have yet a law like what Maryland is proposing and 22 other states already have. There is still no protection in California when emergency personnel or just your average person, you know, like any of our listeners and ourselves, tries to help an animal, not necessarily in a, in a hot car, but let's say in another situation, like in a burning building, uh, people are not protected and could be sued. So California, while it is a leader in many areas of animal welfare, we still have a little bit of a ways to go to make sure everybody who, with good intentions, tries to help an animal in an emergency, that they are protected and won't be prosecuted, at, you know, treating an animal without a vet license, or because they did something wrong and they can be civilly sued. Bob Ferber, former Los Angeles animal cruelty prosecutor, thank you for going through that with us and explaining it. You're welcome. And you're listening to Animals Today. More after the break. Your Animals Today fun facts for the day are about koalas. When early European settlers first encountered koalas in Australia, they thought the tree-climbing animals were bears or monkeys. Even today, people still incorrectly refer to koalas as koala bears. In fact, koalas, like kangaroos, are actually marsupials, which are also known as pouched mammals because the adult females have a marsupium, or pouch, where their young stay until fully developed. Koalas are only found in Australia, and they are one of that country's iconic symbols. Koalas have special physical characteristics that complement their tree-dwelling lifestyle including their two opposable digits to grip branches and depict the tasty eucalyptus leaves, their main form of nourishment. And these are your Animals Today fun facts for the day. When educator-turned-hip-hop artist D1 finished paying back his student loans, he celebrated by writing the song Sally Mae Back. Now he's teaming up with Sally Mae to help students get on track to paying off their loans. I'm passionate about helping people learn about financial literacy. The reality is that students are hungry for information. They want to understand the facts about paying back their loans and the best way to do it. Sally Mae's Rick Castellano adds, We're thrilled to work with D1 to help students get into the rhythm of repayment. He lays out the process and steps that are both direct and doable, teaching the right moves for building credit and successfully paying back student loans. Now through January 11th, Sally Mae customers with eligible student loans have the chance to win up to $10,000 to pay down their loans. For D1's complete list of tips and to enter the Pays to Repay contest, visit SallyMay.com. That's SallyMay.com. I'm Bob Pebo for the Consumer Radio Network. You're listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of the show. Well, I'm proud to say we are now in our ninth year of weekly broadcasts, bringing you timely and critical animal news from all corners of the earth. Join us each week as we explore animal welfare and animal rights issues, as well as fun pet topics with fascinating guests and experts. And if you don't catch the show live on your local radio station, you can listen two other ways by going to the Animals Today website, www.animalstodayradio.com, or as a podcast on iTunes. It is so easy to subscribe on iTunes. And when you do, each week, usually on Sunday, a fresh show will download right onto your device. Pretty cool. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and thanks for listening.
Welcome back to Animals Today. Hey, Lori. Hey, Peter. You know, I've had a couple of instances in the backyard in the evening or in the morning with one of the dogs, Sky, and Sky, I've learned, has a habit of drinking out of my cup. And I've learned that Sky likes the taste of wine, so I need to not take my, you know, in the evening, I'd like to have a, a little glass of wine outside, watch the sunset. It's very relaxing, but I can't put my cup down because before I know it, she's slurping out of it. So I've had to be really guarding that, which is somewhat annoying. And then also in the morning, same thing. I've got my coffee out there and she will drink the whole thing of coffee if I let her. And, you know, the question that comes up now, what? there's dogs live. What should I do with this drink? Right, Lori? Yeah. What do you do with it? I'm still trying to figure that out. But what do people do? Right. So then we thought it would be interesting to pose this question on Facebook. So we wrote the following. Would you continue to drink your beverage, whatever it might be, beer, coffee, water, orange juice, etc., after your dog drinks or licks from it? For example, your beverage is on the table and your dog takes a couple licks out of it. Do you continue drinking from it or do you throw it out and prepare your drink over again. And a similar question for your plate or bowl of food. If your dog eats some of the food, do you continue to eat it? Do you throw it away and start over? Or do you just throw out the portion that you think he touched with his mouth or tongue? Finally, do you share a spoon or fork with your dog? Please tell us your preferences and share your stories. Mm, good questions. Okay. Yeah. So ready for some of the... It's good that you ask this because I'm always wondering, am I like in the mainstream or am I like really doing my own thing. And like, am I super germaphobic or am I just like an average pet, you know, guardian? So I'm glad you put that out there. What, what did people say? I think it was a split response, actually. Here are some of what people said. Yep, my dogs are my kids, but if I get a piece of hair, it's all theirs. Yeah. Okay. Someone else says, yep, I use my spoon to give them a taste of something and then eat from the same spoon. By the so way, they don't mind if I use... The spoon either. I don't mind. Okay, so that's a very specific thing. You're, you're sharing a utensil. and So that's very brave, I think. This person writes, yes, my animals eat and drink from my plate and glass at times, and it doesn't bother me. Someone else, not a problem for me. Someone else, sure, why not? We kiss on the lips every day. What's the difference? Here's a funny one. Considering that he was licking from his, and I'll just change the word to testicles, 30 seconds ago, I would say No. And someone replied to that comment by saying he shouldn't have any, quote, testicles, but I know what you're saying. Mm. Okay, I want to tell you what I do with the food on the plate scenario, because this I've changed over the years. I used to just start all over if the dog was anywhere near my plate, but now I sort of uh, wall it off and I'll just sort of eat around where I'm guessing they might have touched. But what about the argument that our dogs kiss you in the mouth and you let them? I know it's not logical. It's, I'm just trying to enjoy my dinner without thinking about saliva and stuff okay. like that. I don't know. This person writes, gross. Of course not to either. Animals' mouths are not clean, contrary to that fairy tale. Another person writes, I love my dogs. They can sleep in my bed, but kissing a dog, etc., is just nuts. They are an animal and do lick places you wouldn't be licking. Mm. No, I wouldn't share a meal or drink with our dogs. I love them, but I am a bit of a germaphobe. Oddly, I don't have a problem with them jumping up on the couch or on the bed, though. Lori, I don't have any pets, so I don't have a dog in this fight. If I did, I would not eat something a dog slobbered on. I love dogs, but I realize that dogs lick themselves in some areas that 
aren't what I would consider sanitary. Okay, so the okay. same theme here. Yeah. I don't like that phrase, dog in the fight. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. I don't either. All right. This person writes, weird, if the cat drinks from my cup, I finish it. But if the dog drinks, I pour it out and fix a new one. So, so perhaps there's a certain amount of saliva, like you mentioned, above which they would not tolerate, <laughs> right? Because the dog slop, right. Everyone yeah. gets the dog slobbers more than a cat slobbers, mm. right? So, Peter, do you think these people who don't mind allowing their dogs and or cats to drink from their beverage, can you assume these people would not mind taking a couple sips out of their dog's water bowl? Oh, boy. That can get pretty nasty if you don't refresh the water often enough, you know? <laughs> uh, I got to be pretty thirsty to get to go there. See, that's the saliva factor. Yeah. yeah. Okay. What do you got there? Well, it's sort of uh, semi-saliva related. <laughs> it's a nice uh, story. In Santa Monica, a firefighter recently saved a dog using so-called mouth-to-snout resuscitation. This uh, this uh, Bichon mixed dog, 10 years old, was uh, found unresponsive by firefighter Andrew Klein during an apartment fire in Santa Monica. The dog was not breathing and did not have a pulse, according to the fire captain. The firefighter said, I just grabbed him. He knew he was unresponsive and decided he just needed to bring him back. He used mouth to snout CPR and they also gave supplemental oxygen. It took 20 minutes for the dog to begin breathing on his own again and the but dog wow, ended up fine. That's so great. It was really a, it's a great story and yes, it's a great story. There are some details that are not included here. For instance, whether chest compressions were given because earlier in the story they do say he did not have a pulse so usually you'd want to lay the dog on the side and give chest compressions and also do the breathing. And I also read that in mouth to snout, if the dog is a larger dog, then you close the mouth and you just breathe through the nose. And in a smaller dog, you just put your mouth over the nose and the dog's mouth and breathe for them. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. And similar to human resuscitation, first thing you need to do is what? You need to you know check the pulse, check the respirations, and then see if the airway is clear. And then if you think there's an obstruction, you do a doggy Heimlich by coming behind the dog and lifting the dog up and just, you know, doing a Heim doggy Heimlich. Yeah. You know, pet owners really should refine their CPR for their animals, shouldn't they? They give courses on this. Yeah. And I bet you just going online, you can get a good feeling of what's going on here. Right. So thanks to Andrew Klein saving that dog. The dog guardian said, I am just so grateful. Well, thanks so much for bringing that subject up, Peter. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Today's Animals Today Minute features the world's largest land carnivore, the polar bear. Mainly receiving nourishment in the form of seals, these majestic Arctic dwellers may reach heights of 8 to 9 feet and weigh as much as 1,700 pounds. Their adaptations to surviving the extreme climate include very thick white fur, even on their feet, black skin to absorb the warmth of the sun, a thick layer of blubber beneath the skin, and large flat front feet which aid in swimming. Newborns weigh only about a pound and stay with their mothers about two years. Polar bears are classified as an endangered species with only 20 to 25,000 left in the world. And that's this week's Animals Today Minute.